All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, as we continue our study in the, the Gospel of Matthew. And we have entered into the final week of the life of Christ. As now he's entered into Jerusalem, and he's going to head, take a beeline straight to the cross. And by the end of the week, he'll be crucified, he'll be buried, he'll be risen again. So we're in the, one of the greatest weeks in the history of the world. And I want to show you this morning, as we look at this passage, and in this week, this final week, will take us at least another year to get through. I want to get everything we can out of this final week in the life of Christ. I think it's the most important week that's ever been. So we're going to pull everything we can out of it. And today I want to look at one of the most shocking events of the week, an event that I don't think many of us know about, that we've studied, but this is shocking. We get to see a different side of Jesus. Uh, last week we saw the humble and the meek and the lowly Jesus come walking or riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this week we get to see Jesus walk into the temple and he's almost in a rage and turning over tables and knocking over chairs and running people out of the temple. So we go from a lowly and a meek Jesus on a donkey to a Jesus who seems angry and upset and he's turning over tables. So the question is, and I think it's a good question for us to answer today, what makes Jesus so angry? What gets him riled up? And I think we'll see it here, but I think we'll see it in our world today. We need to know what makes Jesus angry. We need to know so that we're not the ones that's in the bullseye of his anger. So we need to answer this question. What makes Jesus angry? And you need to know that Jesus does get angry. So let's stand together and I want to read you this passage. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 and ask that question. What makes Jesus angry? Starting in verse 12 of Matthew 21, it says, And Jesus went into the temple of God, and he cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And you've got to hear it that way. He's not whispering this. He is speaking up. He's bold. He's the one who's going to stand up and not let these things go. Somebody has to do that. So he does it. So he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children that were crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. I mean, they got angry. So, so then you got one side Jesus angry and, and the other side angry. And they said unto him in verse 16, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yeah, <laughs> have you never read that out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And then he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. So we're going to answer this question in these verses. What makes Jesus angry? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what your word reveals to us about you. I think this is a very deep theological passage as we get to learn about the character and the nature of Christ. And when we learn about the character and the nature of Christ, we're learning about the character and the nature of our God. So we need to learn these things. I'm going to say it, God, in a few minutes, but we live in a culture that doesn't like an angry God. But we need to see this side of our God. So help us to understand it, God, that you do get angry and what it is you get angry about. So help us, God, in this today, please. I need to have the right tone in how I present these things. So help me to do that and help the people in the pews to receive it well. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There was a book written in 2017, and the title of the book was, Will the Real Jesus Stand Up? Will the Real Jesus Stand Up? And the whole premise of this book, the author says, is that in America, we love to customize everything. That we want everything to be to our liking. That when we go to a restaurant, we want to customize it. We want to, we want to go to McDonald's and we want it, you know, just exactly how I like it. I, if I don't want, my kids did that yesterday at Chick-fil-A. They said, Dad, I want a, I want a chicken sandwich, but I don't want the pickles on it. Can you tell them to take the pickles off? And we customize it. And if it comes in and they, they forgot to take the pickles off, my kids are like, no, angry. You know, that's not how I like it. Well, I'll take them off. No, the taste is still there. You know, 
send it back, you know, and, and you know, Chick-fil-A, they don't mess it up. They always get it perfect. But uh, anyway, we love to customize things. We, we customize our phones. We customize our cars. We customize our homes. And the author of this book says, in, in, in this culture, in this world that we live in, where we customize everything, that we're, we do the same thing with Jesus. That we like to get our Jesus the way we like to get our Happy Meal. That we want Jesus to be to our liking. We want Him to be how we want Him to be and not how the Bible says that He is. We want a Jesus to our liking. We take what we want and we get rid of the things that we don't want. And the problem with that is, is that many people choose a Jesus that isn't like the Bible. They'll choose a Jesus, and this is the most popular Jesus that you'll see, is the, the nice Jesus, that he's, he's always loving, he's always kind, he's always compassionate, he's always got his hand outstretched, and that he's always got a, a smiley face on, and that he's a, a neighborly Jesus, that, that uh, he, he's always there. Just like a good neighbor, Jesus is always there. So they love the nice Jesus, the neighborly Jesus, and the, the Jesus that never gets mad about anything at all. He's always, again, smiling. He's always happy. He likes everything we do. He agrees with every view that we have. He's never mad at us, and He never corrects us. We love the nice Jesus. We love the never mad Jesus. That's the one that the culture loves to have. The problem with that is, is that's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus, yes, is loving, and, and he does smile, and he is always there, but Jesus also gets angry. And that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus gets mad. Jesus gets red-faced. Jesus corrects us. Jesus judges. That shouldn't surprise us, but what might surprise us, I think everybody here knows that, that Jesus does get angry, but what might surprise you is what he gets angry at. Because we, again, we like to customize Jesus, so we'll say, yes, he gets angry, but he only gets angry at the things that I get angry at. He gets angry at things that aggravate me. He gets angry at those people who are driving down the road and they're swerving around and you pass by them and they're sitting there texting somebody. That's what makes Jesus angry. Why? Because that makes me angry. Whatever makes me angry makes Jesus angry. So we even customize what he gets angry about. But I think this passage in front of us is one of those passages that shows us that Jesus might not get angry at the things we think he's going to get angry at. So as we look at this, we've been traveling with him for, I mean, several weeks we've been looking at this as he's walking up to Jerusalem to go to the Passover for the last time. And there's a lot of things in the, in, in the journey to Jerusalem that he's seen. That he's, that he's paid attention to. Things that maybe if we were walking with him, we would have, they, they would have gone on our nerves and we'd have gotten mad about it. Oh, that angers me. But the Bible doesn't say Jesus gets mad about those things. Jesus didn't get mad at the notorious sinner Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector that was getting rich off the people. And the Bible doesn't say that Jesus got mad at Zacchaeus. It doesn't say that he went to Zacchaeus' house and started turning over tables. He didn't get mad at him. And then we saw the blind beggars who were, who were screaming at Jesus. Have mercy, O oh Lord, have mercy. To the point where everybody was like, shh, you're getting on our nerves. They, they, they got angry at him. But Jesus said, bring them here. He didn't get angry at them. And then you had the children that he met along the way. The parents started bringing children and, and trying to, to get him to bless them. And the disciples said, oh, send them away. The disciples got mad. Jesus said, no, 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 let the children come. So all these things that maybe would have made us mad and got us upset, not Jesus. So what is it? All those, all those situations, he, he showed compassion and love. He loved the outcasts. He touched the lepers. He forgave the adulterers. None of those made him angry. So what makes him angry? What makes him angry is when he, when he walks into the temple and he sees a bunch of religious hypocrites. Amen. That's where his anger is aimed at. See, we get angry at everything happening out there. Jesus gets angry at what's happening in here. When it's not right in here, Jesus gets stirred up. When it's not right where it should be, Jesus gets angry. And I want to show you that today. He's not mad at the pagan, idolatrous, evil Romans. He's angry at the religious people. 
So this might surprise you, but let's look at what makes Jesus angry. And I've broken this down into three points, and I want you to follow along with me. It's, it's a very important passage for us. As he's going in to the last week of his life, some say this is Monday, uh, some say this is Tuesday of the last week. I'm not really sure, it, it could be either one. But here we are, verse 12, I want to show you what makes Jesus angry. The first thing I want to show you is, in verse 12, the corruption in God's house. The corruption. This is what makes him angry. There's corruption in God's house. So look at verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God. So I want you to pay attention to this because in, in verse 11, or verse 10, it says when, when he's come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. So he just entered Jerusalem. And then after entering Jerusalem, the very next thing that he did, the word and is there, and Jesus went directly to the temple of God. He makes a beeline as soon as he gets into Jerusalem, not anywhere else, straight to the temple. If he was a military king, he would have went to Pilate's house and tried to overthrow him. If he was a social king, he would have went to the streets and started to protest. If he was a political king, he would have run for office. And that's what they expected him to do. That's what we would expect him to do. Because if Jesus showed up today, the first thing we would think is he needs to go to the universities and fix them. Those professors are, are so liberal. They're teaching atheism and agnosticism. Jesus, come and do something with the schools. Or Jesus needs to go to Hollywood. Boy, if anybody needs fixed in America, it's Hollywood. Sinful, wicked Hollywood. Jesus coming and fix them. Or what about Washington, D.C.? Well, wouldn't we expect that, right? Washington, D.C., it's a, it's a swamp. It's, it's evil. It's, it's corrupt. Or Wall Street. Anybody paying attention this week? Go to New York and Jesus needs to fix Wall Street. That's not where his eyes at. His eyes on the temple. His eyes on the place of worship. Because the real problem with society isn't, what, isn't what's happening in Washington, D.C. or Wall Street or Hollywood or universities. The real problem that's happening in society is in the house of God. John MacArthur said the measure of any, any society is its relation to God. We need to understand that the problem in America isn't what's going on in Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or Wall Street or in our schools. The problem in America is what's happening in our churches. Old Testament says if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. It doesn't say if they will, will humble themselves. It says if my people. The New Testament says that judgment must begin at the house of God. This is where his eyes at. He goes to the, the heart of religion, the, the soul of the nation, and he goes to the, to the temple. That's where he goes, where it should be right, but it was wrong. Where it should be clean, but it was a mess. He goes to fix the temple. Listen, if he shows up today, he's coming to the church. In Revelation 2 and 3, he walks through the church. So what does he find when he gets there? I said it, he finds a mess. Look what he finds. It says he goes into the temple of God. And he finds, and I want you to see this. He goes to the temple. And I'm going to lay it out for you. It's a massive complex. Acres upon acres of land. And there's, I've got six different courts. Just follow with me. You need to hear this. As he would enter in the temple, the very first place he would go would be the court of the Gentiles. The opening. Anybody could go in there. It's the court of the Gentiles. So men, women, whatever nation you come to, come to come from, you, you could be in the court of the Gentiles. And then there was a, a wall that you had to cr cross through, and then you go to the court of the women. And at that point, the Gentiles were left behind, and the Jewish men and the Jewish women could go to the court of the women. And then there was another barrier, and you had to cross that, and it was the court of the Israelites. And there, only Jewish men could go. So the women had to stay out. And now only men could go. And they're the ones that would take their sacrifices there. And then the very next court, was the court of the priests. So now not just any men, a man could, uh, could go in, it had to be a priest that could go in. And then you had the holy place. And there only the high priest could go in. And only on the day of atonement. You see how it got smaller and smaller as it went? It went from the Gentiles to the women, to the men, to the priests, to only the high priest. So Jesus here as he enters would be in the first place, the court of the Gentiles. And this place would be packed out with people. 
Because anybody could go there, right? Anybody can be there. So this place is the, the busiest part of the temple. It's, it's, a, it's so packed out, it's like Walmart on the first of the month. There's people everywhere. Jerusalem holds about 100,000 people. And at that time, there would be over 2 million people there. So this is uh, uh, far beyond their capacity. Thousands of people just mulling around this court of the Gentiles. And they've all come for worship, to, to, to make a sacrifice. And look what he says he finds. Verse 12. He found what should have been a worship place had become a marketplace. They were buying, it says, and they were selling. All that sold and all that bought in the temple. You see that? You can underline the sold and, and the bought. There's people selling and there's people buying there. It's, it's, it's like Walmart. It's like, it's like a, a marketplace. The people would come from all over and they would need to, to make a sacrifice at the temple. And when they got there, there'd be these tables set up all around selling sacrifices. They'd be selling a, a pigeon. They'd be selling a dove. They'd be selling a, a sheep. And, and it, the poorer you are, the smaller animal you would get. And the, the, the more money you had would be the, the bigger one that you would get. And, and you'd walk in there and you'd say, I've got to make a sacrifice. And there'd be as people, oh, I've got you one. I've got you a deal. You can buy one, get one free over here. And you'd go over and it's like going to a, a, a big basketball game. And you go and you're going to get a drink. And usually a bottle of water costs a dollar. They'll sell it to you for $10.50. They had that jacked the prices up on all these things. So if you're going to buy a pigeon, usually it costs a dollar, but today it costs ten dollars. And I'll give you two for twenty. <laughs> you know, big deal, right? So everybody's buying and they're selling these things, and the priests are sitting there just saying, "Here's you, here's your pigeon, here's your dove, here's your sheep, here's your goat," and they're charging huge prices and making all kinds of money off the people of God. And then it says, and I've got to hurry, my, my hourglass is running out. It says, <laughs> he overthrew the tables of the money changers. You say, well, what's this? Well, there's some other tables over on the side that if you came to buy and you didn't have the right amount of money, you came from a different nation, you had to exchange your money. And they'd go over there and they'd say, okay, give me your dollar, but you had to give the two dollars to get one dollar back. It wasn't a fair exchange. So they're making money off that. So you've got all these priests and, and the high priest is sitting there watching all of it because he's skimming off the top and the temple is making huge money off the people of God. That's what Jesus finds. They're making a, a fortune. What should be a place of worship had become a marketplace. What Jesus finds here is religion that dishonors God. What was going on there had nothing to do with God at all. They had forgotten that in the presence of God, it's a holy place and you take your shoes off. You don't sell and make money off people. They weren't worried about what God thinks. This was man-centered, man-focused religion that was completely out of order. What should have been a house of worship had become a den of thieves. And not only was it a religion that dishonored God, it was a religion that used God's people. They wasn't, the priest wasn't there praying for God's people, they were praying on God's people. They wasn't reaching out to people, they were reaching into the pockets of people. This is religion that dishonors God. And you say, Josh, do we have anything like that in, in churches in America today? And I've got to be real nice, and I'm going to be real nice. And usually when I say that, I'm getting ready to say something real mean. Churches today are full of fakes and phonies and heretics and hypocrites and exploiters. And you say, how do you know that? You turn on a TV and the first preacher you find is most likely a phony. You turn on Facebook and now Facebook and that, that's good. It's full of church services and preachers and sermons. But you better be very careful that it's not full of fakes and phonies and heretics and hypocrites and exploiters. Not praying for, but praying on. Not reaching out, but reaching into the pocket of people. We have a culture today of churches who have prostituted the bride of Christ for money. Dressing her up and making her look better so that they can attract the world to her so they can get more money in their pockets. 
It's in churches all across America today. You want to know why America's in the shape that it's in? Because the churches are in the shape that they're in. That's the problem. It's not about making America great again. It's about making the church great again. I'll say even this, it's not about making the church great again. It's about making church uh, about God again. That's what we do. That's the new campaign that we ought to make. The churches in America need to get rid of all this man-centered stuff that's all about glorifying man. And the, even if it's the man up here or the men and the women out there, it's not about you in church. It's about God in church. Behold our God. Come to church to hear about God, to worship God, to sing to God, to give to God, to be with God's people. This wasn't about God. It was all about man. Churches today, our church must be about God. Turn on a TV, you're more likely to see a wolf than a shepherd. And this... Makes Jesus angry. This makes Jesus click the angry face and not the smiley face. This fires Jesus up. We would say today, Josh, just leave him alone. I'm told that. People will come and say, what do you think about this guy? And I'm like, no. Well, just, just be nice, Josh. Leave him alone. People say, what do you think about this church? I say, no. Have you, have you not paid attention? Have you not watched? Have you not seen? Have you not heard? Oh, just Josh, just be nice. Leave him alone. Let it go. What if Jesus had just let this go? Everybody else had let it go. Everybody else had let this go on and on and on. And nobody said something. But Jesus got stirred up and he said, I'm going to do something about it. And watch what he does. Somebody's got to say something. When God is being dishonored and God's people are being abused, somebody has to say something. These are the kind of things we need to get angry about. Not the texting driver, you know. Not that he didn't get my order right. But they're dishonoring God. The place that has God's name on the house. And it's not about God there. So I, I want to be nice. But I want to show you what Jesus does. I've showed you the corruption in the house. Let me show you the cleaning of the house. Because <laughs> that's what he does. He comes in and says, I'm cleaning this place up. And how can he do that? It's his house. Watch what he does. He gets angry, furious, enraged. <laughs> He's not on a donkey anymore. And I want you to understand this. His anger is different than our anger. His anger is a righteous anger. It's right. His anger is, a, is an under-control anger. Aren't you glad that our God doesn't have an out-of-control anger? To the point where planets start, start moving around? But His anger is controlled. It's focused. It's not about Him. It's about what they're doing to the name of His Father. So Jesus, watch what He's, He casts them out. <laughs> and this, this is a powerful scene and Jesus went to the, to the temple of God and he cast out all of them. I found it fascinating. They cast out the ones that sold and the ones that bought. You say, well, I, I, the one selling is the one doing the wrong. But I, I, the one selling is doing the wrong. But it's the gullible ones who are buying and not saying anything about it. They're both doing wrong. So he goes in and he casts them out. He takes control. He rolls up his sleeves and he takes action. Cast out all the buyers and all the sellers and just runs them out. This isn't a whisper. I don't know how he does it. It doesn't say. John 2 says that it, he, he used a whip the first time he did it. And I think he just does it with a word here. I think he just says, out! And starts running people out. Get out of here! What authority! What power! What strength! I told you it was like Walmart on the first. This is place was packed out full of people. And one man clears the whole thing out. Get out of here. What if Jesus showed up today? People say it all the time, I want Jesus to be in church. He might clear the place out. I, I said that when I first came here. I said, God, I want you to be here. I want you to work here. I want you to move here. I want your presence in our, in our church. And before I know it, people start leaving. 
Be careful when you ask that. He might run some people out. What strength? What authority? He just doesn't run them out. Look what it says. And he overthrew the tables. And I'm not talking about a little folding table. This would be a massive table. I mean, Jesus isn't some kind of wimpy, scrawny little man. He's a strong carpenter. He's, I think he's got bulging muscles as he takes the table and just flips the thing. And there's money on the table and it goes flying. And he knocks over chairs and animals and birds start flying everywhere. People's running away from Jesus. He's angry. So I haven't seen Jesus like that before. Am I making it up? He overthrew the tables of the money changers and their seats. This is what they, they would do. The commentators say that they'd sit at their tables and their seats was a cage with birds in it. And when they'd give them money, they'd pull a bird out of the cage and they'd give it to them. So Jesus went and turned the tables over. And money could fly everywhere. And they'd stand up, take off running, and he'd knock their, their cages over and birds would go flying away. This is a scene. People are fleeing, birds are flying, money's all over the place. What a powerful act. As he comes in to clean house, and then he explains himself. I think our anger should always have a verse. I can't find a verse about getting angry in traffic. Here's a verse about what's happening in the house of God. Here's what Jesus, he's, 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 he's justifying his action here. It's a, it's a biblical explanation. He quotes Jeremiah 7 and he says, and he said unto them, I mean, here's what it is. And he's not just mad for no reason. He says, here's what's wrong. It is written. He's, he's saying this out loud as he's doing it, as he's turning over the table and knocking over chairs and saying, get out of here. He says, my house. <laughs> he didn't say the Father's house, did he? In John 2, he calls it the Father's house. Here he calls it my house. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. What he's saying here is you've taken something that was meant to be so wonderful and so beautiful Go and read when the temple was first instituted and, and it was supposed to be a place for people to come and meet with God. Amen. It was supposed to be a place where people could come and they could talk to God and they could make sacrifices to God and they, they could hear from God and they could worship God and they, and they could confess their sins to God. And It was a, a, a beautiful place and a, and a wonderful place and people would look to it and think, oh, it's the greatest place in the world. We get to go there and there is where we meet our God. It was all about God. You've taken something that was supposed to be so beautiful. And I want to I want to say this, the church is supposed to be so beautiful. That people come and they worship God and they hear about God and they sing to God and they give to God and they're around God's people and you come and, and it's just the greatest place on earth. And it literally is the greatest place on earth. But people have corrupted it and made it ugly. They've made it like every other place in the world. They have. You go into, I don't go into churches, but I feel like I go into churches when I'm scrolling on my Facebook feed and there's a church. Click. And it's no different than what something I'd see in the world. They've made something that's supposed to be about God and they've made it about man. And it was supposed to be so beautiful and they made it so ugly. The bride of Christ is beautiful. It's wonderful. He loves his bride. He died for his bride. Don't you dare prostitute his bride. Dress her up. Make her into something that she's not to attract the world. Amen. Say, Josh, you're being angry. You're being mean. Watch what the church is doing to the bride of Christ today. Amen. Spurgeon said, if you don't get angry about that, then you don't know Christ. He said, you've taken something so beautiful and you've made it into, look what he calls it. You've turned it into a den of thieves. You've turned it into a cave. That's what he says. He says, well, what's a den of thieves? 
It'd be a place in the mountains where thieves would hide out. And you know what they'd do in there? And, I, and it doesn't say this. This is just what I would imagine I would do if I was in a den with thieves. It's where these wicked, evil men would all congregate. And they would sit and they'd count their money. And they'd laugh. And they'd plan how they could get more money. And that could describe some churches where wicked and evil people come and just figure out and laugh and plan to get more money. There's a lot of ugliness that goes on in the house of God today. And it makes Jesus more angry than the ugliness that happens in the White House or in the Congress or in the Senate or in the Hollywood Jesus said in Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea made him sick. Spewing out, spewed out of their mouth. So now that he's cleaned them out, watch what he does. Always after anger, there's compassion. Find Jesus getting angry in the Gospels and the very next act is a compassionate act. We've got to keep that balance. I'll even say this. You say, Josh, you're meddling. <laughs> That's a good preaching. When you really get into it, there's a lot of churches that will preach angry about these things and they'll be mad-faced and just red-faced and just ready to, you know, ready to fight. Jesus turned over tables. He didn't fight people. Just angry all the time. Jesus wasn't angry all the time. The very next act was a compassionate act. Once he cleaned house, watch what happens. And I love this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. This is so different. These people didn't run and hide. Everybody else running. These, these buyers and these sellers and these money changers and these, these phonies and these hypocrites and, and these, uh, I mean, these people that were just ruining the house of God, they all go running and they're hiding. They're, they're, they're cowering in the corner, afraid of Jesus. But all of a sudden, look, look what happens. Blind and lame come to him. They didn't run and hide away from, from him. The whole place wasn't cleared out. Who's left? Who's the ones that are now coming to Jesus? The ones who were supposed to come to Jesus to begin with. The broken people come to Jesus. The ones that were left out are now the ones invited in. The ones who were rejected and the door was closed to are now coming to Jesus. The ones who couldn't, couldn't get a step in to the Holy of Holies, are now seated around the feet of the Holy Son of God. Amen. I love that. Once you get all that stuff out of the way, this is good application. Once you get all the phonies and the hypocrites and the fakes and the extortioners and the people who are in it for the wrong things, once you get them out of the way, it just opens up the way for everybody else to come in. He cleaned them out and brought them in. He brought the poor. He brought the marginalized. He brought the lame. He brought the penniless. Get this, these people, these people had no money at all. They, they couldn't come in and buy a dove or, or a pigeon or a sheep or, or a goat or a bull. Or, they couldn't buy anything. They, they had no money. They couldn't exchange anything. And he says, come on in. You're the ones that belong here. I came to seek and to save the lost. I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. I love that. The ones that had nothing to offer. The ones that wasn't even the court of the Gentiles. They were outside the temple. And Jesus opens the door and says, come on in. And what does he do? You see what happens when broken people come in? That's the church. You, you get the mess out. And you start seeing the broken people come in. And he says, watch what he does. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. I don't know if you guys see that. They, they wasn't allowed in there. So they come in the temple and he heals them. There's healing there. The blind see, the lame walk. Mark says that he sits down and he starts teaching them. And maybe he did this every day during the week. He'd show up that week and he'd heal 
and he'd teach and he'd heal and he'd teach. And I think right there in verse 14 is one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Matthew's gospel. Because now, in that moment, he's cleaned everything out and welcomed these people in. And the temple now is exactly what it was meant to be. A a place for broken people to come and to meet with God. It's beautiful. This is is what God intended. This is Jesus at the center of everybody's attention. People coming, people being healed, people worshiping at his feet. This is the whole point of the temple. You'll see it later on in, a, in probably a, a month. But in Matthew 21, verse, look at verse 31. Talking about the same people he run out. He said, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom before you do. And John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. He's talking about those two groups, the, the, the hypocrites that he run out, the, the whitewashed tombs that put on a show, that had the, had the full dress, that looked the part, that had the form but did not have the power thereof. He said, you guys are, are out, and, and the, the broken, and the, and the needy, and, and the harlots, and the prostitutes, and the drug addicted, and the, the blind, and those who can't even walk, those are, are welcomed in. This is not now a hideout for the criminals, it's a hospital for the sick. I love it. A place for the hurting to come, a place for the outcast to come, a place for the, the downcast to come, a place for the, the guilty to come, not the self-righteous to come. And he healed them all. This is exactly what the temple was supposed to be. Jesus cleaned it out. So that's point number two. We saw the corruption in the house. We saw the cleaning of the house. I want to show you the last, the confrontation in the house. The confrontation. Because now you have a group that's, that's mad at him. <laughs> We've seen two angry. Jesus angry, and now this group gets angry. Look, look what they do. It says in verse 15, And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they saw the miracles. They saw the lame come in being carried, and now they're walking out. They saw the blind come in, and they didn't even have eyeballs, and they walk out with brand new eyeballs, and they can see. They saw ones that didn't have eardrums and they came in and now they can hear. I mean, they've seen all this. This is, this is miraculous. This is unbelievable. And instead of saying, wow, he's helped these people, look what they do. So they saw the wonderful things and they heard the, the, the children in the temple crying. And what were the children saying? There's, there's a side point to this, but I might, my hourglass is still running. So the children were crying in the temple. As all this was going on and Jesus was healing and, and Jesus was teaching, you had children in the temple that were repeating word for word what they'd heard their parents say the day before. Sidebar, children will repeat what you say. We've changed a lot at church since I've been here, but one thing that's remained the same is praise the Lord at the beginning. You say, Josh, why'd you keep that? Because the first worship song my kids ever learned to sing was let's just praise the Lord. They hear you saying it, they're going to say it. Amen. They hear you sing it, they're going to sing it. I love it. I was just sitting around the house the other day and, I, and, and we had baby Hallie was sitting in her little chair watching her little TV and, and there's my little, you know, Emma. She's sitting there with her long flowing red hair and, and all 25 pounds of her and she's looking down singing to, to baby Hallie. And I wasn't even paying attention. And she, what was she singing? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus. Steph started singing, Oh, precious is the flow. We had a choir going in our house. Where did they hear it? The parents singing in church. I love that my kids know hymns. It's a sidebar, but it's a good sidebar. So where did the kids learn Hosanna to the Son of David? I thought, where did they get that at? You know where they got that at? Verse 9, as the multitudes were crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. The day before they heard, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. So when they see Jesus healing in the temple, the first thing out of their mouth is, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. Save now, King. Save now, King. If you weren't here last week, you don't get that. 
It's a good argument for being here every week. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're singing to him. This is a picture of what worship ought to be. Jesus in the center and broken people coming to him and people all around singing about Jesus being their king. This is a great picture. But look what they do. These fake hypocrites. It says, and they were sore displeased. They were really, really, really mad. So much so that Mark says they wanted to kill him. They wanted to wring his neck right then and there. I'll say this, there's no evil like unsaved religious evil. These are hard-hearted, gnashing their teeth, losing control, unreasonable in their anger. I've seen people like this. Unreasonable. You can't talk no sense into them. Out of control rage. I mean, this is where they're going to get when they crucify him. We just can't take it no more. Sinful anger. Jesus' anger, focused, righteous. He's doing it the right way. Their anger is just, oh, I can't take it. We're going to kill him. They're angry. Out of control. And this isn't about God. This isn't about how others are being treated. They could care less about how those people are being treated. This was personal. You came into this house and took our glory from us. And they ask, look what they say. i got to move on. And they said unto him, do you hear what these kids are saying? <laughs> There's a sidebar here. I'm going to try my best not to chase this rabbit. They look at these kids and they're saying, these kids are noisy. These kids are disturbing. These kids are getting on our nerves. Can you hear what they're saying? They're distracting us. I won't go there. They were okay with noisy screams for money. They were not okay with noisy screams of praise. And they asked him, are you going to let them do this? Are you going to let them keep singing about you being their king? Are you going to keep letting them praise you like your God? Are you going to let this go on? Angry. And again, I'm saying it in a calm way, but I, I, they're angry. This is sore displeased. I mean, they're mad. They're red-faced. They're looking at Jesus saying, How dare you let them do that? Stop them now! And Jesus says, <laughs> Yeah. That's what he says. I mean, I, I underlined it. I thought, yeah. I mean, he just looks at him and they're, they're, they're mad at him. This is how you respond to somebody who's mad, somebody who's angry, somebody who's in your face, unbelieving, religious, looking at you saying, how could you? You going to let this go on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course I am. Amen. Yeah. And then he backs it up with Scripture. There's so much here. How you deal with somebody who's angry? Smile and say, yeah. Sure I am. Yeah. Why not? Makes people so mad. Yeah. <laughs> I had a guy one day. <laughs> we, was in, we was in Kingsport. And I, I, I probably cut him off or something. I don't, I don't know. You know, he got mad. He re- rolled down his window at me. Steph, Steph remember this. I thought, I didn't know, I didn't know I did anything wrong to him. I thought he was going to tell me thank you or something, you know. <laughs> he rolled, rolled down the window. I don't know if it wasn't this, probably this. <laughs> and he, he looked at that window and just, just started, you know, giving it to me. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you. Just smiled at him, made him even more mad. Was, you know, just kept on going. <laughs> Jesus said, yeah. I just imagine smiling, but yeah. I'm going to let these kids sing. Why should I stop the kids from singing? And then he quotes scripture. I don't know why I told you guys that story. Maybe I feel guilty about cutting them off. I don't know. He says, yeah. Have you never read? And you know they've read. These guys are professional Bible readers. He says, have you, ever, have you never read? That out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. 
He says, have you not read, this is a psalm, have you not read what David said? That out of the mouth of babes, praise will come. Have you not read that David said the adults will be angry and they'll be silent and they won't be praising? But the babies, the sucklings, the kids that are under three, that's what that is, a suckling, a baby that's, that's still breastfeeding, that out of, the, out of the mouth of a baby will come praise. And get this, and I, and I like this, have you ever seen an atheist baby? Have you ever seen an atheist kid? They're not born that way. They have to be trained that way. They know God exists. They're praising the Lord from the time they come out of the womb. They know there's a God. So out of the mouth of babes is, is coming praise. It's the adults that are angry and not singing. I, I don't know. I don't have time to get into it. But kids always sing better than adults. They, they get up here. We used to do this kids singing up here. And it was just kids just screaming. I think that's better than any of us do. Just from their heart. So he says, have you read so he says, yeah, I'm going to let him sing. It's music to my ears. I, he allows it. He likes it. He says, yes, this is what I want in the temple. Kids singing. And then it says just abruptly, watch this verse 17. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on and close. And he left him. You see, you see that? I think that's more scary than him turning over tables. When he's turning over tables, he's saying there's a chance. Respond to my anger by repenting. But when he leaves, there's no more chance. I would rather him turn over tables than turn and walk away. Amen. There comes a time, even in churches, where he comes in and says, okay, we're going to fix this, and he turns over tables. And if it's not fixed, the very next step is, he turns and walks away. And he leaves the church and Ichabod is written on the church doors. And he's no longer with that place. I'd rather have him turning over tables than turning and walking away. Yes, amen. There comes a time in America when Jesus shows us that he's angry. And it's a turning over the table moment. When we see that the wrath of Almighty God is upon us. And it's a time for His people, which are called by His name, to humble themselves and to pray Amen. and to seek His face. And the very next step is that He turns and walks away. And I don't know where we are as a nation, but He may have already left. Romans 1, He just leaves us to our own sin. And lets us go. And that's the worst act of anger that God ever performs. When he just lets us go and do our own thing. And also, you say, Josh, you're talking church, you're talking nation. This is individually. There comes a time when Jesus wants to come into your house and clean your act up. He comes in and says, I've got to turn over some stuff. I've got to fix your marriage. I've got to fix your kids. I've got to fix your, you as a husband, you as a father, you as a mother, you as a wife. I've got to clean some stuff out. This don't belong there. Get that out. And, and he's cleaning and he's working. And it, it, it's no fun. It's, it's anger. But I'd rather have that than him say, I'm just leaving you alone. Yeah, I'll leave you to your own dirt, your own mess, and your own ugliness. But he does that. He just says, okay. No more. And he leaves the temple. And he walks away. Just lets them go. For me, that's scarier than turning over tables. Amen. There's nothing else to say. There's no more need to stick around. So he left. And where does he go? He goes to Bethany. And he lodged there, which means he stayed the night. And we're into another day of the week. Commentators say that he, that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And that's where he liked to stay the night when he was in Jerusalem. And I think he would go and he would sit down with Lazarus. Can you imagine Lazarus? He was dead. 
Just in my mind, I imagine Jesus sitting down and there's Lazarus beside of him and they're sitting there drinking some, maybe not coffee, but they're both Hebrews. Uh, (laughs) It's okay. And they're sitting by a fire and Mary and Martha's in the kitchen. One comes in, they're cleaning his feet and they're in the kitchen preparing food and drinks and and the anger's kind of subsided. But it won't be long. Another day, two days. And I can imagine it weighs heavy on the mind of Christ. Just how angry those priests were. And in a few days they're going to get him. And they'll lay hold of him. And they'll arrest him. And they'll try him. And their anger will be so out of control that they'll send him to a cross to die. And here's really what set them off, to send him to a cross. And on that cross, it won't be their anger that's so bad. You with me? I want you to get this. It won't be the anger of the Jewish scribes and the priests and the Pharisees that weighs heavy on the Son of God. It will be the Father's anger. And the Father's wrath. That as Jesus goes to the cross. And he takes our sin upon his shoulders. And the Bible says he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. That my sin was on his shoulders. And your sin was on his shoulders. Your sin was on his shoulders. And the anger that God should have poured out on me. And on you. And on you. And across this room. The full fury of Almighty God in His anger. What would have spent eternity in hell on us was in that moment poured out on the Son of God. We can't imagine the fury and the pain and the agony of that wrath being poured down on the Son. All the fury of hell on Jesus. So that today, if we believe in Christ, because of what he did on that cross, we get the smile of God and not the frown of God. That's what changed there. The fury of God on our sin became the love of God and a smile. So that we as believers, and I want you to get this today, I want you to get this. Believers, if you put your faith in Christ, you have the the smile of God upon your life. That He's not looking down on you, angry. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He looks down on us and loves us and smiles on us the way that he loves and smiles on his own son. I don't walk around worried that God is mad at me because my sins have been paid for upon the cross. That's comforting for all of us today. But... Understand that if you're an unbeliever, that the Bible says in Psalm 7, God is angry with the wicked every day. That you don't have his smile. That you have his frown. That you have his anger. And that if you don't believe, there comes a time when he turns and walks away and you go to hell where it will be the anger of God Throughout all eternity. It will be the frown of God. Throughout all eternity. Hell isn't a place without God. People say that. God's there. It's just the smile and the love of God isn't there. It's full fury and wrath and anger. Throughout all eternity. But if you believe. And put your faith in what Jesus did for you on that week then you could go from a 
angry face of God to a smiling face of God. Like that. So I call on you today, if you're a child, if you're an adult, and there's any question about where you stand, put your faith in Christ and what he did for you on the cross, and you can be guaranteed full forgiveness, salvation, justification, no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and eternity in heaven where there is no anger at all. And you can have that today plead with you. I urge you. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for revealing yourself to us, even the uncomfortable truths, the things that are hard for us to grasp, the things that we might not even want to hear. But God, we need them. We needed the full revelation. So God, please help us as believers to see who you are to see your anger, to see what stirs you up. And God, let that be what stirs us up. To the point where we as a church and we as a nation, a nation of churches, and churches all across the nation, that we would, your people, call upon your name, humble ourselves and pray. That we would repent in your house. That we would, in our churches, make it about you again. I think that's our only hope as a nation. Not that, God, we get a new president or a new Congress or a new Senate or new judges or new governors or new mayors or a vaccine, all those things. That our churches turn back to you. I just don't think we're paying attention, God. So please turn us back to you. And let it start with me and let it start with our church. And let it spread. And God, I pray for any unbeliever in this room today. Help them to understand these things are true. And the last thing they would ever want is to stand before you in your anger. So God, let them believe today to put their full faith and their full trust in you today for salvation. And I thank you for every single thing that Jesus did for us in that week. And I pray, God, that you would write these things on our heart as we study them. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.